Good morning. Oh, come on. I know it's dreary. Good morning. <laughs> My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, and Merry Christmas. So uh, it is, yeah, that sounds a little weird, right? Like it's, it's, your, it's December 3rd. It is actually December, which means that it is Christmas time. Um, so if you were like me, you've been listening to Christmas music since the end of October. Um, some people wait till after Thanksgiving. I do not. Uh, I, you will listen. I, that song that you, we were playing earlier, uh, there's a Christmas song. We're gonna, you're you're going to hear more of those as we approach uh, Christmas Eve. But I listen to those songs all the time. I really do. And I, I, they're just worship songs, <laughs> honestly. Um, and so I, I love it, but um, it is officially Christmas, uh, which means that we've got our Christmas party. Again, I want to highlight that Christmas, not this week, but next Wednesday right here. We're going to have a Christmas party, ugly Christmas sweater, all the things. You don't have to wear the sweater, but come on. I mean, you know, you want to. So uh, it's going to be a good time. Um, and this morning, though, and we are going to continue through our series in Exodus, but we're going to make a transition this morning, a little shift uh, into part two of our series, which we're continuing through the book of Exodus, but we're starting a new part, part two of this series, which we're calling God with us from the ark to the manger, okay? So from the ark to the manger, God with us. And so we're going to enter this Advent season, uh, and we, we're kicking it off with the first candle that has been lit, and it is the candle that represents hope. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, the sermon title for this morning is Hope in the Midst of Battle. So hope in the midst of battle. And so for the past few weeks, again, we've been in part one of our series where we saw God deliver his promised people, Israel, from their captivity in Egypt. It was called Into the Wilderness. And so uh, Tim Keller put it best. Um, he said, although it takes only a moment for God to get us out of slavery, it takes a lifetime to get slavery out of us. And so I think that sums up a lot of what we're seeing very well here as God is delivering his people out of their bondage and captivity in Egypt and they head into the wilderness. Um, but it, it, we're seeing in this process a type and a shadow of the way that God begins to draw us out of our counterfeit identities that this world would put on us and as he draws us into our true identity in him. Not as slaves, but as children of the Most High God. And especially in the Christmas season where we're maybe visiting family or maybe we're around people that might label you by sins of your past or experiences, you need to understand that that is not how God interacts or even sees you. God does not label you by your sin if you are in Christ. He labels and identifies you by your Savior and who he has declared you to be. And he's drawing you in too. And this is a reality that we must hold on to, especially in a season where it may seem like everybody has it together and everybody's, you know, jolly. <laughs> and yet it might feel like I'm not necessarily. I'm still feeling dreary in some ways. And hear me, it's good to celebrate. We want to lean into that. Praise God. We praise him on the mountaintop, but we also praise him in the valley, even if we're in a battle. And so we see this in, this, uh, in, this, in Exodus here. We've journeyed 
out of captivity with the Israelites and into this wilderness with Israel in the series. And so we've been given some very practical examples of how God not only saves and matures Israel, but also how he saves and continues to mature or sanctify us as his children, his church today. And the way that he does this, the way that he matures us, is by reminding us that he is, in fact, God with us. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, both our salvation and our sanctification come to us by beholding his presence, his power, and his purpose. And it's all wrapped up. His presence, his power, and his purpose are all wrapped up in this promise that was given to his people way back in the Old Testament. That's what we're beholding. That's what we're identifying here and identifying with. So true spiritual maturity and transformation, guys, it doesn't happen because you just grit it out in obedience. Like, if you think that those who are just gritting out life obediently, if that's what spiritual maturity looks like, then you're going to often think that you're owed results. You're going to think, well, I did A plus B, and that should equal C, which means God should do these things for me, and I should be at this place. And then if it's not the way you thought it should be, could be, or would be, then it often, if not always, leads to bitterness and resentment. Because really what it means is you think that you have done what it takes, and you are then owed the results of what God should give you because of how great you are. But true, true spiritual maturity, true sanctification happens when we behold who God is. It happens by believing and receiving what he has already done and what he then promises to do in our lives. And so last week, Rich lifted high the gospel of grace. He preached a powerful sermon on the Ten Commandments and looked at, we, we kind of walked up the Mount Sinai with Moses and, and received in chapter 19 the Ten Commandments. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear that message, then I want to encourage you to go back and listen online because it was a really practical way of understanding the character and the character of God and the calling he has on our lives, um, not only for the, the Israelites then, but also for us today. Uh, and so, this morning, though, we're going to drop back a couple of uh, chapters and we're going to pick back up where we left off in Exodus 17 this morning. Okay, so um, the context is uh, so a couple of weeks ago we kind of we wrapped up with the first part of chapter 17, and then we're going to pick up in 17 verse 8 this morning. And what's going on here is that Israel has entered into the wilderness after this miraculous deliverance from Egypt, but now they're faced with a new enemy, and that enemy is not the Egyptians. It's not some external force. It has been themselves. That's the enemy that they face as soon as they leave Egypt. They've been tested in the wilderness, and although it seems like they fail around every corner, God, in his mercy, he's continuing to provide for them. They grumble, they complain, they lose hope, and yet over and over, God miraculously provides for them, and he shows them who they are, and more importantly, whose they are. And he does so by providing for them in ways that they never even thought possible. 
He's teaching them to trust him as sons and as daughters. Instead of just relying upon themselves and their circumstances, he's saying, look to me. I am your source of living water. I am the bread of life. I will make water come from a rock. I'm the creator. I will bring manna, bread from heaven. I will care for you. Look to me, not yourself. And by doing that, he's freeing them from themselves. Again, he's maturing them and he's delivering them from that slavery that is within. But even while they have this internal fight, in them. They're in the desert. They're dealing with this, like, where's our provision going to come from? I'm still trying to trust in this God who's led us out into this wilderness area. And even in the midst of that time where they're dealing internally, it seems like the shots just keep on coming. In fact, what we're about to see is that they're suddenly attacked by another external enemy. Like you might think, well, we just took out the greatest superpower in the world at this point, or God did on our behalf. Nobody would mess with us, surely, right? But then suddenly they're attacked by another nation called the Amalekites. Now, previously, Israel didn't have to raise a finger in their struggle with Egypt, right? We've walked through the series so far, and what we've seen is that God did it all. He did everything. They just kind of sat back and watched and maybe like activated their faith by just painting the blood over their doorway. But at the end of the day, it was just God that did it. But this fight is different. God invites these formerly enslaved people to engage in the battle. To stand upon the victory that he's already won for them. And they would need to because these were not warriors. They were former slaves. So for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through the last portion of Exodus 17 and through chapter 18. We're going to answer three questions that I hope will help us to apply what we're reading here to our lives today. Okay? So the first question, who are we fighting? That's a good question. Second question, what are we fighting for? And then third, how are we to fight? Okay, so who are we fighting? What are we fighting for? And how are we to fight? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else from what we're saying, this is what I want you to get. We fight our battles by beholding our hope in Christ. We fight our battles by beholding our hope in Christ. So, all right, first question, who are we fighting? Let's look at uh, Exodus 17, verse eight. It says this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So again, Israel's just been delivered. They faced hunger and thirst and deep uncertainty. Millions of them, former slaves, out in the middle of nowhere, drawn out by God into this wilderness. And he's just like, trust me, I've got you. He's proven it over and over again. But it's hard to get the slavery out of you when you've only depended upon yourself and had to fight for yourself because nobody really cares about you. It's tough to trust in someone when they say, I really do love you. I really am going to take care of you. Am I the only one that deals with that? This is a reality. This is part of God sanctifying and setting his people apart and establishing his heritage with us. Because these people, they're fearful. They're distrusting. And here they're extremely vulnerable, or at least they feel vulnerable. But God's proven over and over again that he will provide all that they need and more. He, he doesn't just lead them. He journeys with them. He doesn't just wind up the clock and say, figure it out in the desert. I'll be over here. He goes with them. But now they're suddenly attacked. 
Amalek attacks them, or the descendants of Amalek, also known as the Amalekites. So it's important to know who Amalek is, okay? So a lot of times we see these names, we see all this stuff, and we're just like, ah, old Bible stuff, don't know, right? So I'm going to give you a little history lesson. You guys in? You guys for it? Okay, you got to lean in. Okay, it's going to give you some context that I hope is going to really help you even understand a lot of what's going on in the rest of the Old Testament, all right? So what we see here is it's important. Amalek um, it, it represents something for us today as well. So rewind to Abraham in Genesis. God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. He promises to make a nation through a promised son that would be born through his very old wife, Sarah. It says that she is, uh, <laughs> basically it's like, she's really old, like past, way past birthing uh, age, right? So Sarah is old and Abraham and Sarah were very impatient, but God promised that he's going to make a nation through Abraham, a son, and Sarah. But Sarah decides, I'm too old, and I don't have what it takes to fulfill God's promise. Do you hear that language? She even laughed at God when he made the promise. Because what's she laughing at? She thinks she's laughing at her incapacity, but what she's really laughing at is God's capacity. That's not a good idea. Side note. When God calls you to something and you refuse because you think you don't have what it takes, that's not humility. It's arrogance. It's arrogance that you think it was ever up to you in the first place. That comes across so many times in people as false humility and they're like, oh, I just, I don't have what it takes. You know, so Moses dealt with this. We see this all the time. But the reality is we're not saying I don't have what it takes. We're saying, God, you don't have what it takes. And that is where sin is born. And so we try to do things in our own strength. Sarah wanted Abraham to receive this promise. She just didn't think she had what it took to be a part of the promise. And so she offers up one of her servants, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. She was young. She was able to bear children in the flesh. And so she offers up her servant girl to her husband. Women, don't do that. <laughs> That's a bad idea, right? That's a bad idea. Men, if they do, don't say yes. Also, bad idea, right? Like, we look at this and we're like, okay, this seems, this seems pretty like straightforward. And yet, this is crazy. Like, when we look at this now, we look back and we're like, what were they thinking? And it's like, well, we do this kind of thing all the time. Not, we might not be sleeping with our wives' friends or something, but it's like what we do all the time is we try to skirt or get to what God's promised in our own strength and in our own flesh and in our own way instead of trusting and entrusting our current situations to Him. P.S. Just because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean that it is prescribed for holy living. Amen? You understand that. This is a big way that we should understand the Bible. Just because, especially in the Old Testament, just because you see a description of something doesn't mean that it's a prescription for us to live now. That's like, yeah, that, that's a big 
issue in our culture, and it's just really, there's a lot of confusion surrounding that. So this is a situation where they did something that God was like, that's not what I meant. So she, she then conceives a son, Hagar. Hagar conceives a son, and it's a son outside of God's covenant promise. It's a son who represents Abraham and Sarah's attempts to accomplish God's promise in their own strength and in their own way. You guys tracking? His name was Ishmael. But God said, that's not the promised son, nor is that the promised line. In fact, a nation will arise from Ishmael, but they will be, quote, wild donkeys of men. Don't look at me. That's what the Bible says, and it probably doesn't use the word donkeys if we're honest. Okay? So wild donkeys of men, and there will be enmity between Ishmael's descendants and the son of promise, which God did, in fact, deliver on. His name was Isaac, and he was born through Sarah. Okay? But Isaac now has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the oldest and had the birthright. Okay, so there were twins. The first one was born, and because he was older, he came out first, essentially. He then gets the birthright and the promise that comes with this. Track with me. I promise we're going somewhere. But he was enslaved then to his own carnality. He grows up. He's suddenly, he's been born with the birthright of promise, but because he's controlled by his own emotions and his carnal desires in the moment, he then sells his birthright to Jacob in a moment of hunger. He cheapened his birthright and he sells it for a bowl of stew. It's a long, wild story, but both, of J both Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers, they were really jacked up. They were tricksters, they were connivers, they were constantly at odds with each other and the world around them, and there's all this trickery going on and striving in this thing, but God's mercy and promise was on Jacob's life. And he then takes this brother Jacob and he changes his name to Israel. And that's when, when Jacob says, you are my God. And he receives this relationship and then it's through Jacob or Israel that we get the nation of Israel. Okay? These are his descendants. But what about Esau? The other brother. What about the one who rejected his birthright of promise for his own carnal, momentary desire. He started his own family with a bunch of Canaanite women. That's what we see. In fact, we even see that he married one of Ishmael's daughters. So Amalek and these Amalekites, back to the story, we actually see that they are actually the generations that come from that blatant rejection of God's covenant and promises. That's who these people were. They had, 430 years later, after that story, they had grown into sort of tribes and nations of their own in the surrounding regions. A people who had rejected God's promise and God's covenant and ran to worship other lowercase g gods. And in that process, they developed a deep, even demonic hatred for Israel. God's covenant people. So there's a lot more going on here than just a random tribe in the desert. That's what I want you to see. 
There's a lot more represented here in the Amalekites who were waiting for their opportunity and they were driven by a ravenous and demonic desire to wipe Israel out. That's what's going on here. So even though they knew that the Lord was protecting Israel, even though they had just watched Yahweh make it real clear to everyone that the reason why I'm delivering you with these big, loud, crazy plagues, the reason why he did all that, he made it real clear, was so that not only Pharaoh, not only Israel, but so that all the nations, say all, so that all the nations in the region and all over the world would know that I am Yahweh the God of Israel, uppercase G, okay? So that would have included the Amalekites. So this attack is extremely foolish. It's even an arrogant attack, and it's a rebellion against Yahweh himself. All right, you got it? You with me? Verse nine. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now remember, this is the first time that God invites Israel into the fight. Again, before they were just basically like, you know, he, he's just going, trust me, act by faith, but just sit back and watch. But now he's saying, activate your faith by getting in the fight, which would have been petrifying. Like it's a lot easier to kind of sit on the sidelines and watch God do what he's doing. And sometimes it's like, well, I'm faithful because, you know, it's not up to me. It's up to God and I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. But God has invited you with the honor to get in the fight. And that's what he does. This is what he does for his children. He shares the honor of the battle. And so this is what he's inviting them into, but it's petrifying. Remember, they were just, they were former slaves. All they knew was brick and trowel, not sword and shield. And so God's inviting them in here. And, and, and so Moses is sent to the hill where everyone can see him, including the Israelites and the Amalekites. And so he's to hold up this staff that signified God's authority over those lowercase g gods of Egypt. Remember, this is that same staff that signified the authority of God in the plagues. It was the same staff that he raised in the Red Sea parted. It was the same staff that he threw down to the ground. It became a cobra that represented power and authority over Pharaoh. It was that same staff that represents God's authority over all of the lowercase g gods. And so this is the staff that he is to hold in his hand as he raises it up over this battle. And so it was a, a, a picture, a blatant reminder of what God had already done and promised to do for his people. It was pure hope. It was pure authority. And it was lifted high on a hill for all to see. That's important. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord? The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
So, seems pretty intense, right? What's this generation to generation stuff? Like, didn't they win? Like, why is he still saying the Lord's going to have war generation? Didn't they already beat them? Like, why blot them out later? Why not blot them out now? It's a good question. I want you to think about it. There's significance here. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot more represented. Like the Amalekites represent an enemy that goes way beyond this little desert tribe. The Amalekites signify the rebellion even of Satan himself, whose hand was raised to the throne of God. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we'll see these little skirmishes with the Amalekites and the Israelites. They're going to pop up throughout the Old Testament. They're over and over again throughout Israel's history. They're dealing with these Amalekites. Why? Well, the Amalekites represent a people whose hand was upon the throne of the Lord. In fact, the phrase in Hebrew is literally that their fists are raised against the Lord's rule and reign. You see this a lot in opposition to the things of God. It's the spirit of Amalek and Esau and Satan himself. It's a demonically fueled kingdom that resists the kingdom and rule and reign of God that is advancing upon the earth. It's what Paul was talking about when he says in Ephesians 6, 12, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so these same rulers, powers, and principalities that are at work in the Amalekites in the Old Testament continue today in the world around us. I want you to see this because it's important. You need to understand that there are only two kingdoms. There's only two. There's not a lot of kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven, which is ruled by Jesus, and there's the kingdom of this world, which is ruled by Satan. That's it. And you need to understand this. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral party. There's no Switzerland in this war. Right? Like you're in a battle whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Like just because you're like, well, I'm an atheist or I'm a different religion and that's all the, that's just that second kingdom. It's all the second kingdom. It's not like we're, it's not like the Christians versus the Satan worshipers. Everybody's a Satan worshiper if they've not been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we're presented with in scripture. Everyone stands condemned, rejecting his promise and running to their own little G gods. That's what we see. There are two kingdoms. And guys, you're in this battle, whether you want to acknowledge it. These two kingdoms are at war, and they've been at war for a really long time, and things are not getting less intense. Like, it's not like it was really intense back in Bible times, and now it's like, oh, that stuff is all... That stuff is raging right now. Raging. And I want you to have gospel eyes to see it so we know who we're fighting, what we're fighting for, and how to fight. Because it's not a battle between moral and immoral. Follow me. It's not like Christians, again, versus like the bad people. (laughs) This is about those redeemed by the blood and those who have not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is about spiritual bondage to sin and death, and it's about redemption to eternal life. That's what this is about. Like the kingdom of God isn't about who's the most kind to the grocery store clerk or who makes their bed in the morning and who doesn't. 
That's not what we're talking about here. Yes, be kind. Really, be kind. But yes, lean into discipline and ethical morality. But do it because of the grace you've received in Christ. Do it because of the life you have in him. Not so you can earn it. Like kindness and or discipline cannot save anyone. Because you can never be kind enough and you can never be disciplined enough. But praise God, that's not what saves you. Now, if you're just a jerk and you don't care, <laughs> right? Like, that's just license and you probably don't love Jesus. It's probably a symptom that you are not following the one who is very much pointing us to discipline and kindness and love, Jesus Christ. Again, Rich did a great job preaching this last week. Amen? If you guys were here for that, then if you're not, you can see that online. Um, but the point is that it's not about moral or immoral. It's not about good or bad. It's about captive or free. It's about spiritual death or eternal life. And as we lean into Jesus, he transforms us from the inside out and sets our hearts aflame for that which he loves. And it's authentic. It's not a striving in, that ends in bitterness and resentment, okay? This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die and he conquered death and the grave and he paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection and it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die, it's an eternal life that starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ did for us at the cross which covered that penalty of sin and allows his spirit to infuse you and change you and transform you from the inside out so that when we sin, when we fall and we find ourselves wallowing in that pit of despair and hopelessness, his spirit says that's not who you are. And we then can stand up as men and women of conviction in the spirit and say, I'm following Jesus. That's who I am. That's the gospel. And he draws us out and he draws us in. And this is our hope, even in the midst of the battle. You see, just as Moses lifted up the staff on the hill, Christ was lifted up on the cross on the hill of Calvary. It's a clear connection. This is what Moses raised for all to see. It was the gospel itself. Like he's saying, lift your heads, even in the midst of battle, even in the midst of what feels hopeless and despairing, especially in the midst of battle. In Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who died on that hill and took authority over all the lowercase g gods and set me free. But we live in a world of spiritual warfare, and in many ways, we are surrounded. Totally surrounded. Anybody ever felt surrounded? It's because you are. <laughs> you live in a world of warfare. Like, we fight on three fronts. We fight our own sinful flesh, our own desires, our own carnality. That's one front. We fight the, the, the pull that the world has on our flesh and desires. We fight, the, the, we fight with the world. We fight with our own sin. And, and we also fight with the one who's fueling it all, which is the demonic powers and principalities. It's a three-front war. It's a three-front battle. But I want you to hear me, guys. 
God is not up that mountain. This is oftentimes how people perceive this, and it's wrong. He's not like distant and far away. He's not just up there on the mountain trying to get us to live a certain way down here. But he has come down the mountain in Jesus Christ to us. He's with you. If you are in Christ, he is in you. And he fights with you and he fights for you. In fact, it's easy to think, again, God's up there. He's distant. He wound this thing up like a clock and he just set it in motion. And now I've just got to like figure it out. But, but, but I want you to notice that, that while Moses is up on that mountain with the staff, who's leading the host of Israel in the fight on the ground? Joshua. Gosh, I love this. This I hope this blows some minds. Joshua! Joshua's leading the armies in the war. There's the authority on the hill, on the cross, and Moses is up there. Remember, this is the gospel. But you know who's in the thick of it. Even when Moses is out of sight, you know who's not? Joshua. And his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. In Aramaic, Aramaic, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. We say Jesus. It is a clear picture of Jesus Christ. And yes, this is the Joshua who would later lead God's people into the promised land, another type and a shadow of who Jesus is and would be and, and will be for us. And so there's these types and shadows all over. So, so in other words, like Joshua was a historical figure. He was just a man. This is not Jesus, but it is a type and a shadow of who Jesus is and will be for us. Okay? Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God with us and he goes before us and he fights with us even now. And so he is our living hope, which brings me to the second question. We're going to have to speed it up pretty fast here. (laughs) What are we fighting for? All right, chapter 17 closes with a promise that God will eventually blot out Amalek's memory from under heaven. But in the meantime, from generation to generation, it says, God's people will fight against these people who raise their fist against the Lord and his throne. And so why does God put up with them from generation to generation? Again, why doesn't he just wipe them out up front? We know that on judgment day, one day he will. With a word, Christ will return and it'll be over. But why wait? Well, in the next chapter here, another man shows up in chapter 18. His name is Jethro. He's a Midianite. We know who he is um, because of what happened earlier in the book of Exodus. But he's also a descendant of Esau. Okay? So we've got the Amalekites, who are descendants of Esau, and we have the Midianites, also nations descending from Esau. But Jethro is the father of Zipporah, who is the woman that Moses married way back in the early portion of Exodus when he fled into the wilderness. And so she entered into this blood covenant with Yahweh, the Lord, and she even circumcised her son Gershom, who is Jethro's grandson. And so over the years, Zipporah and Gershom's life would have been this powerful witness to this man, Jethro, and his people of who the Lord actually is. So when Jethro shows up in chapter 18, he hasn't seen Moses and in, 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 since he released him to go set Israel free. So it's almost like, you know, Moses flees from 
uh, Egypt and he runs and he, and he runs to the Midianites in the wilderness and he meets uh, Zipporah and he meets Jethro and he marries Zipporah and, and he's hanging out with them for a little while and then God calls him to go free Israel from Egypt back here and it's almost like a little deployment that he takes, right? He's over here and he's doing all these, the plagues and all this stuff and he sets them free. Meanwhile, his family's back here with Jethro, but they are loving the Lord. They are following God. They are kind of in on all of this and he's back there with Jethro. So they're witnessing to him. And so now Jethro is back on the scene. And his response here is that to all that God has done is not a raised fist. It's the very opposite. Look at verse one, chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay. And so Again, they're on that deployment. Now he comes to meet Moses with Moses' wife and sons. Verse five, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God, which would have been Mount Sinai. And when he sent word to Moses, he says, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law of all that the Lord had done uh, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the, in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, or the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all lowercase g gods. Because, this, because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Remember, raised fists, demonically charged impudence, impudence against God's covenant family. That's what was happening. He sees all this and he's, Jethro's like, I now know that the Lord is the one who has the authority. I now know who this God is and that he is greater. He is the capital G God. Verse 12, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So I, I think Jethro is placing his faith in the covenant promise of Israel here. This Midianite, this descendant of Esau, the, 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 like this faith would be looking forward to the cross. I want you to see this. That sacrifice offered was a looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. So the point is, the point of all that is that while there will be a world full of Amaleks, there is also a world full of Jethro's. See, Jethro was not a part of the kingdom. But here I think we're given insight into who this war is actually for. We're given insight into what and or who we're actually fighting for and why God doesn't just wipe out all the nations. Because if God wipes out everybody who's evil and has gone astray, there go I, but for the grace of God. Amen? And so it's, it's for the Jethro's. 
It's for the Zipporahs. It's for the Rahabs and the Ruths, if you're familiar with their story. This saturates even the Old Testament. You see, our fight is not against the nations. It's against the powers and principalities that rule and deceive them. It's not against the lost. It's for them. It's not against the world. It's to save the world. This is the Great Commission. This is, the, this is the reason for the authority given to Jesus Christ through the cross and resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, after he's been resurrected from the grave, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, say behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we should never compromise to become like the world, nor should we lose sight of the mission or the commission because we've so demonized the world that we're fighting against instead of recognizing that we've been invited to deliver them. Now we don't compromise, but we are called also to deliver the world that is in bondage to all of this chaos and crazy. That's a hard line to walk. That requires real discernment and wisdom. And I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. You don't have what it takes to figure that out on your own. It's impossible. God, look, the disinherited nations are to be Christ's inheritance. That means that those who are far from him, even hostile to him, are the very people he came to bring deliverance to and redeem. And they are also the opposition. It's like, it's like the woman, you know how it's like you got the woman up in the tower and all these like old school fairy tales and there's a dragon like separating you. It's like she is the dragon. It's like she doesn't want to get, she's like, no, because she's so bound up. And that's what God's called us to, and that's the battle he's called us to fight. Or he's invited us onto the front lines of, but he's the one who fights for us. He's the one who does the convincing. He just calls us to testify and to witness and to stand and to lift high the gospel. This is what he's called us to do. And what an honor. But it's not easy. In our own strength, it's impossible. It's even hopeless, which is why it requires that we do it God's way and not our own way. We gotta do it God's way, not our own way. Because if we do it our own way, we're gonna do it poorly. <laughs> which leads me to the final question, how are we to fight? The simple answer is under Christ's authority to do it his way. So remember, none of this is in our own strength. Like it all comes through the authority that Christ purchased at the cross. Again, this is the significance of the staff that Moses raised. It represented the authority of God over the gods, the lowercase g, gods of the nations. And it was a reminder of the promises that God already had fulfilled in Israel's life. And it was a reminder of the promise that he would be faithful to keep. And so remember, the battle progressed when the staff was lifted high and in the same way, when our eyes are lifted to the gospel, when our hearts are aflame and set on who he is and what he has said, that's how our church will advance. That's, that's it. Like that's 
how our church will grow in both depth and width. When your hearts are set on Him, so God will make a way for us where we don't see one. He lifts our eyes to the cross and He calls us to lift others. So, so, so lift your eyes to the gospel to be lifters of those around you. So like, I can imagine in that fight, and you're kind of in the fray, like even when Israel was in that fight with Joshua there and they're leading and they're surrounded on every side and they can't see the staff. They can't see Moses. He, remember, he was like over 80 years old, so he's, he's frail and he sits down or he's, he's out and he can't lift it and they forget and all they see are the Amalekites. All they see is what's in front of them. The enemy's all around them. And maybe then I kind of imagine a shout from Joshua. Something like, behold, like, look, the staff, look, look, there it is. Like, behold, victory, behold, salvation. Like, remember the promise, remember whose you are. Look, I, I, I know that you struggle with sin. I know that you struggle with doubt. I know maybe addiction. Maybe things haven't turned out the way that you thought they would in your life and you feel surrounded. Maybe you feel lonely or abandoned. Maybe that breakthrough, that fear keeps pressing in on you. Maybe that anxiety is just continually plaguing you and you're tired. Maybe your marriage feels like it's falling apart. Maybe you're just angry. Maybe you're hurt. Maybe it's all the above. Maybe you're just weighed down by battle. That hopelessness is sinking in. And this is supposed to be a season that's filled with joy, but for you, it just feels like you're surrounded on every side. But if you're in Christ, hear me, those feelings, they may be real. The feelings themselves may be real, but they don't determine your ultimate reality. The truth is that even when it looks like you're surrounded, he's in it with you. He's fighting for you. Isaiah 43 says he makes a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So despite what you see and you feel outwardly, your spiritual reality is one of being sustained by your maker as you lean into him. Who are you leaning on? What are you leaning on? And he's not just distant up on a mountain. He's not just distant up in the heavens. He's in the fight. He's in the fray. He's closer to you than your own skin. This is what he purchased on the cross for you. His very spirit. Jesus doesn't just hold the victory. He holds you. <laughs> and he holds me. And it provides us with such a security and a victory that we are not just trying to kill the Amalekites, we're bringing salvation to the Jethro's. And we're not called to do it alone. Alone is how you get picked off. Alone is what happens to a sheep that gets, is about to get eaten by a wolf in this world, right? So we are commissioned. We are a co-missioned community. And we need each other to lift up our heads to the cross, to see the staff, to see the victory, to lift our hands and our heads when our flesh fails. And to remind us of the promise and the truth and to point to the victory like a banner waving over you in battle. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, it says this, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So this is how he's called his church to storm the gates of hell in this world, to take the offensive. 
This is how he's designed his church to fulfill our commission. And even Moses couldn't lift the staff alone. And so his flesh failed him. He needed Aaron, he needed her to come and set the stone under him. Like the rock of salvation, that firm foundation and cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Again, it's a clear picture of who Christ is. And Moses needed them to come alongside and help lift the gospel high. Chapter 18 even closes with Jethro giving some solid advice, even godly wisdom to his son-in-law, Moses. Moses has been sitting alone each day from morning to evening. He's trying to counsel and care for this like whole nation of people in the desert as the issues arise. And they're all lined up around the block and they're all like waiting, they're like waiting their turn. And it's just Jethro comes and he's a wise leader in his own right. And he sees that Moses, was what he's doing, and he says, this isn't good. You're going to wear yourself out. And all the people standing around all day waiting for you, they're going to get worn out too. And he says, for the thing, quote, is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. It's all in the same context. And so he says, quote, find able men to be placed as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. With great matters they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burdens with you. And so Moses knew that all truth is God's truth. You guys know that? That all truth is God's truth? Right? And so this is solid wisdom from his father-in-law, even though he's a new believer, He's learned these things and he shares this stuff with Moses and Moses grabs a hold of it. And now we've seen that this has shaped God's people for thousands of years. He's taken this principle and applied it. And I want you to, you to see that we're all a part of a very beautiful, dependent, unified people that God has ordained to be the hope of the world. And we do this as a unified commissioned community. This is how the gospel advances. It always has been. And so the New Testament even develops these principles into a much more robust theology of leadership and partnership in the gospel where God's covenant people come alongside and even underneath each other to point to Jesus. You might say to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city and beyond. So when the battle gets intense and it looks like we're surrounded, we remind each other that we're not just surrounded by the enemy, we're actually surrounded by the Spirit. And so that, that he holds the victory. He is our banner. So we lift one another's heads in unity. And this is how we fight. That our flesh may fail, but God has gifted us with his spirit and one another to carry on. And one more thing before our transition. Luke 23, there's actually a, a, a powerful picture in verse 26 where a man named Simon of Cyrene, he's a foreigner from Africa, and he's enlisted to help Jesus carry the cross up the hill of Calvary. I mean, to share the burden and carry the cross, like what an honor. Like this guy would have just been on the sidelines. He was a Gentile from Africa. He's just kind of watching this thing, probably trying to stay out of it. And suddenly he's thrust into the middle of the most significant event in the universe. He gets off this. And, and, and then now in retrospect, like what an honor. Behold the gospel together. Lift it high, remind each other, pray for each other, gather consistently with each other. In the heat of battle, remember in the dark what you heard in the light. It's not my idea. This is God's way. It's how he's established his church and it's how we continue to move forward and take ground.